This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Rachel Matthews, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. It's lovely to be with you. Dr. Rachel Matthews is a Melbourne-born author, lecturer and teacher. Her debut novel, Vinyl Inside, received strong press reviews and was highly commended by the Australian Vocal Award judges. Siren, her 2017 novel, was part of a PhD at Victoria University exploring sexual violence in Australian football. Her latest novel, Never Look Desperate, is a tragic comedy romance set in Melbourne that tackles the absurdity of despair in the recovering world, the liberation from isolation and the wild frontier of middle-aged Tinder. Uh, Light-hearted stories, but really serious subjects, right? Yeah, I think I think life's like that, isn't it, really? You know, we always have the light and the dark and um, I love humour as a tool for opening up really difficult conversations. Mm, yeah, you've certainly done that with your books. Um, I want to talk about how you came to writing because you've got a largely academic career, right, and you're writing books with meaning, fiction with meaning, but they're also lighthearted and jovial, which is separate to the seriousness of academia, if you like. Talk to me about that. That's a really good question. I think there's a lot of humour in my family. You know, my parents, my brother are very funny people. And um, I think also I grew up in a country environment and I think uh, there's something really lovely about that country humour. It's a very warm humour. And also I think when we understand stories and we really get to know what stories are about, we go right back to the ancient Greeks. Humour has always been a place of relief, I think, for people because otherwise things just get too overwhelming. So um, I think it's just been part of um, my friendships, my family, my communities um, that we have to have a laugh sometimes and I think more than ever at the moment in very difficult times, you know, people want a relief, a relief from things, yeah. You know, it's just reminded me of something at this very moment and I don't want to go on about this, but I'll, I'll say it quickly. I um, I think you know and, and all of our listeners know I've, I was sick recently, very sick, and I landed in hospital. And I told a friend, a dear friend, like lifelong friend, when I came out of hospital I told him how dark it was, how hard it was, what I went through. And his response at every point was laughing. And I was really upset about that at the time, that he thought it was funny. But then I realised days later when I was thinking about it, because it did upset me and I don't think he intended, well, I know he intended not to upset me, but I think it was his coping mechanism. 
And also our relationship was ba- is based on laughter and laughing together. Yeah. And I now, when I look back on it, think that's the only way he could deal with it. Yeah, I, 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 I think Serious you're right. subjects, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, Cheryl. I think um, for a lot of people it's um, the only way to get through something. And I know in one of my jobs I actually work in student welfare in a well, the largest government school in Victoria with a very vulnerable cohort of students. Mm. And for a lot of them and the people who work with them, trying to find the absurdity in moments is kind of a relief and maybe that's what your friend was sort mm-hmm. of dealing with because he he'd seen you so unwell mm. he Poss- couldn't process it no no and mm. it's unfortunate though because it can also create an awkward moment um for people and I guess that was sort of what I was trying to show in the book that that's our vulnerability sometimes we're a bit awkward we're a bit clunky mm. and we're just human because we just fumble our way through things but we're really all the same I think you mm. know I agree with that. I I think we are all, I'm always trying to be as polished as I can, you know, (laughs) because (laughs) you feel that that's professional, right? Yeah. But I am so clunky. (laughs) And then at times I just think I'm just going to have to put up with that because that's just who I am. Oh, yeah, me too. I I often think I'm really immature. You know, someone in midlife, and then I think I reckon that's okay. Mm. Sometimes we need we 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 need to give ourselves a bit of a break and just mm. kind of allow ourselves to be playful. And mm. um, and I know writing and storytelling allows you to do that. Yeah, and playful is interesting, isn't it? Because mm. I think one of the sadness of growing older is losing our playfulness. Oh, definitely. And one of the joys of working in a creative writing classroom is to allow people to go back into that. You know, I have people, um, I I do some teaching and lecturing at RMIT and um, I often run into people who might have been working, you know, in um, very sort of admin-based jobs or working in, um, you know, business environments and they say, I've lost my imagination. (laughs) Help, you know, what can I do? And one of the joys for me in a writing classroom is to create a space where people just find that childlike uh, playground freedom, I think, um, that comes with allowing yourself just to tell a story Use your imagination and be in the moment with that. And we all love that, don't we? Mm-hmm. I've got many nieces and nephews and the many nieces and nephews have now had many babies, right? So I've got a lot of little people in my life and luckily I live right next door to a park so I get to see them a lot because I like visiting. Yeah, because there's parks and there's swings, right? And then there's a baby swing where you put the baby in and you strap it up and then there's a normal person swing next to it and the other day they were there that one of the particular families were there and the little girl said to me Aaliyah she said to me you get into that swing and I thought wow it's been a long time since I've been on a swing (laughs) and why don't we do that why don't we do that because we don't want to look desperate (laughs) we don't want to look vulnerable I think um I think the problem with our adult world is that there's so many rules I don't like rules sometimes because I think they hold back the real our real selves you know we all all must look a certain Mm. we must present ourselves as you say we have to be professional and Mm. I think I think a lot of the online kind of personas that we create are part of that as well. 
Mm. We're in mm. that. We're in a very visual world now, aren't we? We are. We are. Okay, I want to go right back and okay. how you came to writing. Talk to me about growing up. I mean, how you became okay. an academic. Okay. It's funny. I don't. I don't really see myself as an academic. I mean, I, I I've studied and have that um, qualification, but. Um, I uh, what I really love the most is um, communities. So I grew up in country Victoria in Shepparton and um, I'm really grateful. If anyone's listening from a regional area, I'm sure they'll understand there's just something very special that stays with you forever mm. in a country environment. You can also find that in the city as well. But um, I was thinking the other day about Tony Jordan at my book launch asked me uh, where my you know, first inspirations were uh, in terms of writing. And um, I and I thought, oh, I wish I'd remember this. And I hope, Ros, that you're listening. But in year nine, Ros Thompson and I at Shepparton High School used to write love boat stories. And in the love boat stories, we would have the, we would pick out certain guys from the local tech school who happened to be getting on the love boat that that afternoon <laughs> and that we would create these amazing kind of you know romances well of course we'd all get married by the yeah, end of, the trip. of yeah. course yeah. Yeah, yeah and um and I also I remember always writing poems for people and being asked to read things out at, at a 21st or a wedding and I love to do that so there was nothing kind of formal in the beginning um I, I wasn't a very good student as in um I wasn't paying much attention apart from English mm-hmm. and um I had a teacher, Miss um, Benson, who was a wonderful teacher, really strict. We were all really frightened of her. She was an amazing teacher. And she was the first person, I think, in year 12 who said, um, there's something in your short story here that I really like. Oh, wow. So I think for all of us, I think we probably all remember mm. a teacher or somebody mm. you know, who, who gives you that inspiration. And so you didn't really have any aspirations at the time of writing, let's say, in year 12. Were you a good reader? Yes. Yeah. I remember going to the Shep Library with my dad and um, I remember the the smell of the books and the coolness of the old library and um, that magic of that discovery. And I was that person with the torch under the bed. (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. after lights out and I always loved sharing that also with with my dad and um I remember my mum reading me Millie Molly Mandy oh yeah you remember those oh yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah so I always did love it but I I I didn't think at that stage I didn't imagine myself writing novels no no okay so you finish school and you know that you're probably good at writing well you've been told that maybe there's something in it so what do you do I went off to the corporate world. <laughs> well, I, I um, got my qualifications and my Bachelor of Arts. And, um, and why I, that? What what did you study? Oh, I studied, um, I had media and philosophy and broader arts subjects. I'm always interested in understanding why people do the things that they do and the, the choices that they make. I don't think we can ever really understand <laughs> understand it but I didn't really I I think for a lot of people uh, if you enjoy writing it's hard to sort of know where to go and what to do and um, and I have learned a lot more about that now so then I went off and I did a a certificate course at the Council of Adult Education I really loved that then I got into the RMIT professional writing and editing and everything okay so you thought maybe you wanted to be a storyteller at that point yeah and were you working 
Yes, I was working in the corporate world and I had um, a young son and... Um, what were you was, working at? I was working in a um, an education funding program through yeah. Telstra. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it was a long time ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had a little boy? I did, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. talk to me about that. Did that influence... Well, I guess it did. It would have influenced a large part of your life. Yeah, so um, having my son is, I, I think, the greatest gift and probably the, the biggest project mm. of my life. I don't want to call it a project, but um, I think what happens is with people who, who love the creative arts, um, when you have a family and you have work and you have things that are taking precedence, your creative stuff becomes something that you're trying to fit in. Mm. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this mm. um, nodding like, <laughs> for mm. all of us really it doesn't matter what it is does mm. it? you know and uh I think uh I know for me having uh, a child gives you a whole new view of the world and also it made me really think about the vulnerability of all of us mm. you know, when you look at the vulnerability of a young person and how much they need you mm. it just reminds us that we're all um that we carry a lot of that with us through our life, but it's a joy and a gift. Mm. Jo, there's a lot of writers, and I don't know how regularly you listen to the podcast, but there is a theme that comes out where I speak to a lot of female writers who have started writing when they have their children. You notice that. I don't know if you listen to our podcast, but there is definitely a trend there. And I often, I haven't had children, but I have watched people close to me and I'm very, very close to family. And it's hard raising a child. And I often wonder how they fit that in as well. Like, it seems to be this inspiration comes, but you're also in a a different kind of chaos, you know. So maybe it is that the chaos is craving the creativity. I don't know. That's up to you. You're, you're the academic. You need to work that out. I know. I think I think that's a really astute observation, Cheryl. Because I think um, I think sometimes the less time you have, the the harder you can work at having something. Mm. You know, because for all of us, isn't it? Mm. We're all trying to fit so much into our weeks. Mm. And um, the babies are particularly tiring. <laughs> Toddlers are particularly tiring, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm very fortunate in my family. I've always had a lot of support and yeah. um, and that, that's a real um, godsend. But um, as you know, as, as an auntie with nieces and nephews and yeah. uh, we're all playing a nurturing role in our, in our lives, in our communities, and that's something that actually comes up with men, the character that I wanted to create a, a female character who sees her um, role in the world or is not defined by what society says she should be or she shouldn't do um, as something that's not cliche or, you know, stereotypical and that um, every day, you know, we can nurture each other, we can we can be role models and I think that that needs to be valued more and that to me is what men represents in the story. Mm. I love the title, Never Look Desperate, as well because I don't know. You know, do I do it willingly or knowingly or consciously? I don't know. <laughs> but there is a thing about I have about that is always try and maintain some kind of dignity. And I know years ago I had a really big split up, you know, big yeah. and horrible and heartbreaking and devastating. Yeah. And I was so desperate not to look desperate. 
It's exhausting, isn't it? It's mm. really, yeah, I, I can relate to that completely. And, you know, sometimes when I'm teaching my students, you know, I'll be, oh, have I got, you know, I'll be checking, have I got food on my mm. uh, You know, did I wear the right shirt today? Mm. And but uh, also, am I, you know, is am I needy or am I not needy enough or should I be yeah. not needy or am I too needy or, you know, all the yeah. kind of crap that you judge yourself with. Do yeah. you do that? All the time. All the time. I think, yeah. I think we all do and, and perhaps some of us can hide it a lot more. Mm. I think it's really terrible too as we get older and we head into midlife. I think we're particularly mean to ourselves because we're just bombarded with these ridiculous kind of ideals that are not even real anyway. Mm. And I think that's where writing and storytelling and articles and organisations like like Better Eating can really join together to call. We've got to call this stuff out. Mm. I've had enough of it. Mm. I've had enough. You know, why is it that a, a group of women who promote their, their bums and their eyelashes, why are they ruling the world? Why mm. do they get more hits online than David Attenborough? It's absurd if you think mm. about it. It's Absolutely. not even real. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So going back to how you came to write your first book, <laughs> I need to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So you're working, you've yeah. got a baby, yeah. you've got a child. How does the first book come around? Tell me about that. So uh, I'm in RMIT's professional writing and editing course, wonderful course with uh, wonderful teachers. It's called Vinyl Inside, right? Vinyl Inside. Yeah. And I had a wonderful teacher, um, Olga Lorenzo, and um, who's uh, sadly um, passed away. And Olga was a wonderful writer. And um, one day she kind of scared me into finishing the book. You know, she almost pushed me up against the wall one day on a class break and she said, finish this freaking book. And just do it and find a way, just finish it because I really love it. And um, many other teachers there um, were also wonderful influencers, Di Webstale, um, Morrissey and um, Anya Walwitz and uh, a lot of people who were really active still in the industry and really understood. So in class what we would do is we, we would have workshopping and I always felt like the country person who wasn't sophisticated like everyone else in there who were writing these stories about, you know, rites of passage and trips to Prague <laughs> and all these philosophical kind of stories. And my, my story was set in a caravan park in the 1980s and it had an adoption story in there as well. So one day Olga said to me, don't even think about what anyone else is writing. Forget about that. 
just go into your heart and mm. go into the things that matter to you. And it was the best advice I ever had. And I always say that to my students as well. You know, don't ever worry about how other people sound or try not to compare yourself to anybody else because if something matters to you, that will resonate to your reader. Mm. That's so true. It is true. Yeah. Mm. I think for, for anything really in life, you know, when something means something to us, it'll mean something to someone else, I think. Mm. So you finished it? I finished it during the program and I had I had some interest from Penguin and a range of publishers and then there was a bit of hoo-ha with, it went on for a year. It was quite excruciating because I, I, I was so green. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't handle it very well. Mm. I sent it off to too many publishers at once because I got a bit excited. Well, <laughs> that, because often none respond. Well, that, that's right. And they were responding, but they were saying that the public, the, the marketing people are disagreeing with the editing and it's not chick lit and it's it's not overly literary. It's in between. Uh, and then uh, it was highly commended in the Vogel Awards. So, wow, that's a yeah. huge accolade. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, but it was also a real learning experience. And I also realised that um, with the publishing industry that you need to build relationships and um, and sometimes you just have to be patient. Mm-hmm. But you got it published. I got it published. That was, that was a lovely thing. I think one of the biggest joys in my life was giving that first copy to my mum and dad. That, oh, was, wow. that was a lovely feeling of taking mm. that up to the country. Mm. Who published your first book? So Transit Lounge, um, who um, are really making a stamp on the um, oh, they are. publishing industry. They're wonderful. Barry Scott yeah. that is wonderful to work with. They agree. Yeah, yeah they really include the um, the author in the process. And at that stage, it was interesting because I was only their fifth book. Oh wow! They were yeah. brand new. Yeah, so what had happened was. Barry uh, emailed me randomly out of the blue and Barry was working at the Victorian, the um, State Library in Melbourne at the time and he was looking after the Premier Award submissions, which mm-hmm. I'd entered. And he sent me this random email and he said, look, I'm starting up my own publishing company and I just had a look at your manuscript and I really love it. You know, would you like to be on the list? So that was where it all started and I've been with Transit Lounge since and, uh, yeah, they've been wonderful. Mm. So how is the process different? So you've got your first book published and then you've written another one and now another one. Second and third, have you felt, well, one, you're more experienced, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Because writing is about practice. Uh, Often when we're talking about music, people will talk about practice, but storytelling they don't. But I think there's a huge amount of practice in writing. Oh, Cheryl, that's, that's such an important point. It's a craft. It is. And I, you know, I'll often have people, you know, sort of, um, I might be chatting to social that say, oh, I've, um, yeah, I've been, oh, there's a book I'm I'm meaning to write, you know, Mm -hmm. as though it's kind of something you can watch a a 10 minute thing on YouTube (laughs) about how to do it. Mm -hmm. I hear that um, a lot. I hear that a lot. I'm sure. Rachel. (laughs) And also, people often say to me, oh, are you writing something? No, I'm not a writer. (laughs) No. Yeah, it's it's um it is a craft and um number two was really different because that was part yes. PhD and um that was a that was a pretty heavy topic um, mm. that I was looking at and um, tell so, me about it. Yeah, so Siren um, is a novel that was part mm. of a PhD project where I had to look at books that had 
was there any literature that looked at the problem of the mistreatment of women in AFL um, footy culture mm. in Australia? So I knew that I'd be sort of tapping, stepping on a few toes with that one. And what happened, Cheryl, was that the more I started to read, the more I started to see that um, this wasn't an issue with football. This was an issue with a lot of the expectations and the codes and the um, unrealistic kind of stereotypes that um, that men often cannot live up to. Mm. And it started to really um, open my mind to, I thought, this is a real crisis we have here. And I used to speak to my male friends and do a lot of reading and um not just in sporting culture, but in all, all walks of life. You know, we, we um, I'll just do a bit of a trigger warning with what I'm about to bring up for people. But, um, you know, in Australia, we have one of the highest rates of male suicide. On average, we have 40 men each week. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you connect that with. Um, it's terrible. It's terrible, sure. And also oh. we have also uh, each week we have a, a woman who was killed usually by her partner. And mm-hmm. so I started to think about these statistics and these sort of realities. And um, in my novel, Siren, I wanted to show a compassionate view of these pressures that a lot of the um, men in these sporting codes have to um, live up to. Mm-hmm. And also I wanted to show a young woman and her vulnerability when she's wanting to feel special in that space also. And also, to be frank, I, I read a lot of court cases that were really mm-hmm. disturbing to me. You mm-hmm. know, for example, in the last two decades, we've had over 30 cases have gone to court where a, a woman has made a claim about a sexual assault involving an AFL player or uh, an official. And we have not had one conviction yet. So I see that as a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't an anti-football book. I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, I grew up with a lot of footy. My great uncle Jimmy played for St Kilda. My my dad was a wonderful footballer. And um and I think footy and sport are really important in our in our society, but um we have to tell the truth about things Mm. so we can move on from them. Mm, absolutely. Mm. And so your third book, Never Look Desperate, the one we're talking about today, um, how did you come to that? Yeah, I've been thinking about this this morning and um, just before COVID had struck everywhere, um, I'd been thinking about um, being single again after a 15-year relationship and the sort of the shock of that, especially when it happens mm. quite abruptly, and dating again you know, in middle life. And I thought, my God, it's like, um, I've always said, it's like applying for a job and you don't know if you actually want the job, but mm. you still want the job to be offered to you. You know, mm. <laughs> I think that's what dating's like. And it feels almost like starting again. And um, so I think my own experiences, I, you know, through meeting people, and I've met some really wonderful people in these dating spaces, we'll call them. And, um, you know, shared some really heartfelt conversations about loss, about uh, separation, about being disconnected from family, Mm. financial loss, the excitement of a new partner, the excitement of discovering yourself again. Oh, that's who I am, you know, and there's a mix of all those feelings. And then I started the book and I, next minute we were sort of locked Lockdown, 
and Melbourne, we had 250-something days of it. Terrible. Worse in the world, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, on the holiday breaks, because that's the only time that I write in between work because I've got a few jobs and... um, I used to go and when we were allowed, I used to book myself into a hotel for a week. And oh, wow. I remember one week I wrote about 17,000 words because the story was coming from looking at talking to friends about, you know, more than ever, I think we were isolated beyond isolated. Mm-hmm. And all the probably issues that we deal with daily, I think they really came to the surface. We certainly knew who our friends were. Mm-hmm. We certainly knew what we wanted in our connections. We had no time for anything that wasn't meaningful. That's what I felt like. Mm. I felt like it stripped everything yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. And so now not looking desperate was kind of like you were talking before about neediness and desperateness. I think that's when we were all really probably the, at our most authentic selves. Mm. Mm. It was a tough time. Yeah, it was mm. a tough time. So you don't you feel that in terms of process, I guess the the middle one's a bit different because it was PhD. But do you think that in terms of process and as a writer, your approach to all three is similar, or do you think in terms of craft, do you approach it like in a linear fashion and you start writing? Well, you said seventeen thousand words. That's unusual, you know, in that period of time. But you're still working full time, so you've got to kind of make time for this second job do you have a discipline around it that no and each everything's different yeah you're shaking your head that's why I'm saying no yeah this is a podcast yeah I'm sorry <laughs> that's okay right I forgot <laughs> this is a problem we've been inside pretty much yeah yeah that's um, right <laughs> yeah it's um I really admire writers that have that really strict discipline you know where they get up at 5am every day mm. and um you know, I mean, I love my work. I love, I love the teaching and the um, the welfare work and helping out with family and so on. But um, there's not much left. Mm. So what I do is I just go really hard in those. Mm. It might be a week or two longer over summer. Mm-hmm. And um, I always say to my students, don't panic if you can't write every day. And I would say that to everybody else as well, because I feel like there's always something kind of uh, cooking mm. away in the in the subconscious. Yeah, that's a really good tip, actually. And the other thing that I've found really helpful over the years, and, and and I often talk to my students about this too, is to let the first draft just be really loose and not mm. have too much pressure about knowing the ending or knowing the structure because you actually don't really know it yet, you know. So I think if you let the first draft just be a bit wild and a bit free, you'll be able to then shape it. You'll have something to work with. I think that's what writer's block is. Mm. I think it's when we try to control it too much. Rachel Matthews, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Cheryl. It's been lovely. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app 
join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.